free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Galway and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Israelites, uh, white nationalists, patriots everywhere. This is Your Folk Radio and tonight, uh, Restoration Hour. Uh, again, we have cut the restoration hour to a one-hour show for the foreseeable future, as uh, I've just been uh, so uh, I've had a difficult time with uh, nasal congestion, trying to figure out a solution. Someone has finally given me a <laughs> a sauerkraut cure, okay, which which I can't wait to try once I get home. But right now I'm still in Chicago, and. Uh, Looking forward to trying that, okay? So, uh, the last time I had uh, congestion issues was four or five years ago, and uh, I, got, I took a suggestion from a listener, and I was able to uh, cure my problem, but that was just simply due to wheat, and uh, I cut out wheat and bread products, and that cured it, uh, totally cured it, instantaneously. But this is due to leaky gut, so I've been having to try different things, I've been doing all kinds of purges, including castor oil, (laughs) right? And it does work a little bit, but the only thing that really works so far is fasting. And so I've been trying to do like a a 6 hour, 6 a.m. to 12 noon eating stretch and then uh, 18 hours fast. And when I do that, uh, I, I really minimize my nasal congestion, but I'm willing to try just about anything. So this, this sauerkraut, uh, diet works for me because, uh, I love sauerkraut. <laughs> I don't eat it that often, but, uh, I, I remember the good old days in Chicago when you go to a hot dog stand and a very common item was a hot dog with sauerkraut and of course mustard. All right. So. But let's get into today's topic. We're going to talk about the phony Star of David. So the so-called Star of David, which the Jews want to convey to us that it goes all the way back to King David of Israel. Of course, that's a lie. There's no truth to that whatsoever. But before I do that, I just want to really quick, quickly touch on the yellow badge, yellow armbands, yellow uh, whatever the Jews had to wear, it wasn't just the Nazis. The Jews like to make it uh, seem as only the Nazis ever did this to Jews, making them wear yellow badges or yellow armbands. No, this has been going on throughout history. And so I'm just going to quote here, this is from Wikipedia, uh, yellow badge, okay? And uh, several popes had ordered the Jews to wear yellow badges of one kind or another, going back all the way to 1199. Uh, pope uh, Honorius III made the Jews wear some kind of distinguishing yellow garment in 1216. And let me just go here... Uh, Three of these ecclesiastic pronouncements required legal sanctions of a temporal authority. In 1288, James I of Aragon ordered Jews of Aragon to wear the badge. There's a yellow badge. And in 1265, the Cite Partidas, a legal code enacted by in Castile by Alfonso X, but not implemented until many, many years later, included a requirement for Jews to wear distinguishing marks. 
On 19 June 1269, Louis Knight of France imposed a fine of 10 lira, one lira was equivalent to a pound of silver, on Jews found in public without a badge. Latin rota, wheel, French roel, or row, the, the enforcement of wearing the badge is repeated by local councils with varying degrees of fines at Arles in 20, or sorry, 1234 and 1260, Bezier in 1246, Albi 1254, Nimes in 1284, uh, and 1365, Avignon 1336 and 1337, Rodez 
that the Magen David's special significance reaches back to remote antiquity and enshrines some deep, traditionally hallowed religious or historical meaning. Gershom Sholem, one of the great Jewish scholars of our time, here traces the obscure story of the Magen David through its long and curious career and reveals that the true story of the symbol is quite different from that asserted by most accepted authorities. As I said, most people assume that the so-called Star of David was a symbol worn by King David of Israel. That is not the case, folks. Never happened. Here's the article. The six-pointed star known as the Magen David or Shield of David, which is now emblazoned on the flag of the state of Israel, is from every point of view a cause for astonishment. Where did the symbol originate, and what is its true meaning? In the scholarly literature, as well as the popular, truth and fantasy are mingled. Well, that's true of Judaism at all times. Writers on the subject confuse the authentic tradition of the symbol, which they do not understand very well, which is true of Judaism also, with their own speculations, again true of Judaism, some of which are very far-fetched indeed. In some, each man interprets the Magen David as he pleases. There you go. For <laughs> there are many, <laughs> there are many, as many Talmuds as there are Jews. One commentator says this is the symbol of Judaism, of the religious and intellectual universe of monotheism. Another says it is the pure symbol of the Jewish national community. Some say it is the symbol of the wars of the kings of the house of David, while others say it is the symbol of eternal harmony and peace. Uh, not, not quite. <laughs> the unification of the opposites and their subordination to the principle of unity. No. Nope, doesn't mean that either. What is common to all of these interpretations is that their daring is matched only by their ineptness. Yes, and of course, uh, no, it's either ignorance or insincerity, or a combination of both. The shield of David is indeed a wondrous symbol, stimulating the intellect and arousing the passion for speculation. Well, I don't think it arouses the you know, intellect of non-Jews, most non-Jews could care less. And whose heart is not stirred to illuminate the dark depths, each man according to the latest encyclopedia at his disposal. Ah, there's the problem. You've been reading too many encyclopedia articles, especially Jewish encyclopedia articles. Although they very often reveal facts about Judaism that most Jews don't want you to know. But let's continue. Blessed be he who succors the poor, who has shown us wonders by his grace, and has not locked the gates of pious homiletics. Well, good question. Certainly not, not any rabbis. What is the true history of this shield of David in the Jewish tradition? Does it have its roots in the Jewish tradition at all, or in the Bible at all? Has it always been accepted among wide or narrow circles as the symbol of Judaism, or at least as a specifically Jewish symbol? Well, no, and no, and no. <laughs> and if not, when did it begin to serve this function, and through what causes? It's called monopolization. In trying to answer these questions, a distinction must be made between the appearance of the emblem itself, the true two crossed triangles in the shape of a six-pointed star, and the history of the name Shield of David, by which it is now known. For the name and the symbol were not originally linked together, right? Yeah, a lot of fabrication had to go on to link those two together. First, the symbol had to be fabricated. Second, the uh, bargain, she, the, the connection to King David had to be fabricated, etc., etc. Actually, the six-pointed star is not, you ready for this, folks? Is not a Jewish symbol. A fortiori, or fortiori, it could not be the symbol of Judaism. Or therefore, since it is not a Jewish symbol, it cannot be the symbol of Judaism. 
It has none of the criteria that mark the nature and development of the true symbol. It does not express any idea. No, it's just a couple of triangles interlocked. You can make of it what you will. It does not arouse ancient associations rooted in our experiences, and it is not a shorthand representation of an entire spiritual reality, understood immediately by the observer. It does not remind us of anything in biblical or in rabbinic Judaism. Well, my illusions are shattered. (laughs) I have always been told that it's a symbol of King David. That's what I've always been told. I never believed it. I thought it was just a Jewish fable. Continuing. It does not remind us of anything in biblical or rabbinic Judaism. Indeed, until the middle of the 19th century which would be like around 1850, it did not occur to any scholar or Kabbalist, even any Kabbalist, to inquire into the secret of its Jewish meaning. No, they never associated with with Judaism. And it is not mentioned in the books of the devout or in all of Hasidic literature. So it's not in the Bible, it's not in the Talmud, and it's not in Hasidic literature. So where did this idea that the six-pointed star of some some guy named David is a symbol of biblical Judah? How did this idea arrive? Well, of course, it's guilt by association, <laughs> right? Or, in this case, not guilt, but innocence by association? Brainwashing by constant association. If it was once related to the emotions of the devout Jew, that relation was entirely founded on a sentiment of fear. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Because fear is a very strong motivator. People respond to fear. You know, like uh, getting your shot. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, Mr. Kim Smith, it is definitely the star of the Nephilim. It's the star of Remphan, the Rephaim, which are fallen ones, fallen angels. That's exactly what they are. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Kim Smith, I'll take your advice, uh, dietary advice. Uh, Very good. So let's continue with the article, which is already very uh, revelatory regarding breaking up the mythology of the so-called Star of David. So, let's continue. The two-triangle star is to be found among many peoples, both as decoration and as a magical sign. Freemasons like it, too. Although it seems to be younger than its companion, the pentagram or five-pointed star, its occasional appearance as a decoration gives it no claim to be a Jewish symbol. And even as a simple decoration, it is only rarely found among our antiquities. And of course, the author is a Jew, and he says our, he means Jewish antiquities. It appears among the motifs that serve to decorate ancient buildings, uh, uh, swastikas as well, folks, including the synagogue of Capernaum, 2nd or 3rd century CE, But in the same synagogue, the swastika is found side by side with it. Oh my God! And certainly no one will contend that this makes the swastika a Jewish symbol. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. The six-pointed star has been discovered on an ancient Hebrew or Phoenician seal. Okay, that would be a major distinction. Although the Phoenicians were, in fact, Israelites, they were paganized Israelites. So you have to be clear about this. Is it Hebrew or Phoenician? But anyway, but together with our signs and figures, none of which can be considered a Jewish religious symbol, it is not to be found at all in the medieval synagogues or on medieval ceremonial objects, 
although it has been found in quite a number of medieval Christian churches. Again, not as a Christian symbol, but only as a decorative motif. Well, you can't be sure about that. Most of the symbolism in these churches is not just decor- decoration. It usually has some some kind of mystical religious significance. But let's continue. The appearance of the symbol in Christian churches long before its appearance in our synagogues should warn the overzealous interpreters. Right? Okay. So he's admitting that the six-pointed star, or actually, how about hexagram? Isn't that what it's really called? A hexagram? Auf Deutsch, hex means a witch. To hex somebody means to curse them or put them under a spell. It's a hexagram, folks. And the meaning of that is obvious. It is an evil symbol. But let's continue. We can easily understand Jacob Reifman, one of the great scholars of the Enlightenment, who 75 years ago cried out against the shield of David as, quote, as slips of a stranger in Israel's vineyard, recalling the verse, quote, they mingled themselves with the nations and learned their works, unquote. Well, that applies to us, certainly. Even on ancient tombstones, The six-pointed star is not to be found before the 17th century. And then only in Prague. They had a lot of witches there. An exception is one tombstone in Taranto, (laughs) in the south of Italy, not not Canada, (laughs) on which is engraved the six-pointed star near the name of the departed, Leon, son of David. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. So just who is this David? Certainly not King David of Israel. Or Judah. But some guy named Leon, son of David, in the south of Italy. The figure is placed just before David. But we cannot say whether this is more than a mere coincidence. It is assumed that the tombstone in question does not date from later than the 6th century. This symbol does not appear again on any other tombstone of that period, but the five-pointed star, the pentagram, which competes with the six-pointed star in the practical Kabbalah as well, is found on another contemporary tombstone from Spain. The suggestion advanced by the late Chacham, Moses Gaster, that Rabbi Akiba introduced the six-pointed star as a messianic symbol in Bar Kokhba's war is entirely baseless. Okay? So the idea that it originates uh, shortly after the death of Christ is entirely baseless. Now, this is a Jewish author. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what this Jewish author is telling us about this phony Star of David, which has been pawned off to the world as if it were the Star of King David. Let's continue. And as it is with our Akiba, so is it with the 13th century author of the Book of Splendor, or Zohar, which is more Kabbalism, and with the 16th century Kabbalist, our Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Ari, A-R-I. There is no reference at all to the shield of David in their works, let alone as a symbol of Judaism. In all the vast literature commonly known as the Lurianic writings, the figure of the shield, but not its name, is found only once in the context of talismans and amulets. Even here, there is some doubt whether the entire chapter may not be a later edition, since it is missing from many versions. (laughs) Okay? So, if you want to talk about a mythological symbol that today becomes the symbol of Jews everywhere, but it never was that until the state of Kykistan was created. Anyway, 
Nevertheless, the common Jewish textbooks are full of nonsense about the presumed origin of the general use of the shield of David in the Lurianic Kabbalah. According to this theory, the diffusion of the symbol occurred in the 16th century. One author has written, and many have quoted him, quote, This international symbol was diffused as a peculiarly Jewish symbol only by Rabbi Isaac Luria, who saw in it the image of the primal man and the world of emanations. Okay? Very occult, isn't it? Someone else has added that the meaning of the shield of David, as it was expounded in the Book of Splendor, which knows absolutely nothing of it, had a very strong influence on the powerful imagine of our Isaac Luria, who saw... Is that where the word lurid comes from? <laughs> Rabbi Lurid? Who saw in this image a wonderful representation of his vision of the world. In other words, his imagination. Things like these are copied from one book to another, and it is astonishing that no one has thought advisable to look into the Lurianic writings themselves and try to find the symbol and an explanation for it. No, that never occurred to any Jew. He would discover that the idea that Luria gave the stimulus for the diffusion of the shield of David as the symbol of Judaism is a figment of the imagination as is Judaism itself. It may be asked, how did it happen that these scholars confused their own interpretations with those of Luria? Man, that happens all the time, right? <laughs> you read something that sounds fantastic or curious or interesting, you say, yeah, I like that. I'll just repeat it. And I'll, I'll teach my students that, and they'll repeat it after me. That's how Judeo-Christianity works, too. But none of these people ever check the authenticity of whatever. They don't bother. It's too much trouble to take the time to bother with stuff like this. But, of course, here at Eurofolk Radio, we do take the time to figure out, well, what is the history of a word? What is the history of a symbol? What is the history of the people of Israel? No Judeo-Christian congregation has any interest in the history of the people of Israel. Let's continue. It may be asked, <laughs> I have to ask this question again, how did it happen that these scholars confused their own interpretations with those of Luria? The answer is a clear, simple, and slightly comical, quote, These scholars, scholars, scholars write that Luria, in his book, The Tree of Life, rules that at the Passover center, which is simply the meal, we must arrange the plate in such a fashion that its various components should form a six-pointed star. One triangle being composed of the shank bone egg, Oh, okay, the shank bone, comma, egg, and bitter herb. Okay, so these are the three points of one of the triangles. And the other of the horseradish, parsley, and haroset, whatever haroset is. The fact of the matter is that the Lurianic writings say something entirely different about the arrangement of the center plate, and there is not the slightest reference to the shield of David. Quote, and as for the priest, thou shalt put thy right to thy right the zroa, representing the emanation of grace, and opposite to the left the egg, representing might, and between and under them the bitter herb, representing glory. And the haraset shall be put beneath the zroa, representing everlastingness, and opposite, under the egg, the parsley representing majesty, and the horseradish, which is later eaten between the two matzot, under the bitter herb, representing foundation. Unquote. We see, therefore, that these six elements of the center are to be arranged on the plate to represent the six Kabbalistic emanations in the form of two triangles, one under the other, and not crossed over each other, this arrangement does not even suggest the shield of David, but it does 
talk about Kabbalistic emanations. So are you beginning to get the idea that Judaism and Kabbalism are one and the same? If you've got that idea, you are correct. But in the 19th century, when the six-pointed star began to be widely represented on nearly every religious object, artistic center plates began to be made according to the modern taste, and the arrangement set down by Luria, and mentioned also in any number of Haggadahs, was arbitrarily converted to the form of a six-pointed star. Well, it's easy to inscribe a six-pointed star, right? Six straight lines. On older center plates, especially those dating from the 18th century, there are entirely different decorative elements, the twelve signs of the zodiac, the twelve tribes, etc. The confused historians of the Shield of David associated the Lurianic writings or teachings with the modern center plate design that began to be so popular in the 19th century. They concluded without further inquiry that both the arrangement and the form of the sign itself were to be attributed to the Lurianic Kabbalah. Fascinating, folks. Absolutely fascinating. So we can see that even in our modern religion, so-called Judeo-Christianity, if you look up the history of the word Judeo-Christian, you will find that it is no older than the 1930s. That's when the Jews tried to convince Christians that there is such a thing as Judeo-Christianity. Of course, there is no such thing. And many rabbis have said so. And many Christians should be saying so, too. Because up until the 20th century, Christians and Jews hated each other and had nothing in common. We still don't have anything in common except that Christians believe Jewish lies. Continuing. Some modern scholars have even used the writings of 18th century Christian alchemists and occultists to, quote, reveal the shield of David as a symbol of harmony and peace. But there is absolutely no relation in this matter between these sources and the Kabbalists or any other Jewish religious group. The shield of David has neither a Jewish religious genealogy nor a Jewish religious significance, either exoterically or esoterically, except for Kabbalism, which is Jewish. And it certainly had no place in the mystical world of the devout men of Israel. Well, what are they devout to? They're devout to the Kabbalah and to the Talmud. The true history of the six-pointed star and its ascent to the rank of a symbol in Israel is bound up with what is called practical Kabbalah, which is nothing more than Jewish magic, whose links with the theoretical doctrines of the capitalists were always weak. Particularly, it is bound up with the use of amulets and talismans. Oh, isn't that forbidden in the Bible? <laughs> Okay, so folks, uh, the point here is it's not biblical. There's no way the so-called Star of David is biblical. Let's continue. In this area, a strong reciprocal influence was at work between the Jews and Gentiles. For nothing is more international than magic. Magic signs and designs, or how about propaganda? That's a form of magic, too. Magic signs and designs pass from one people to another, just as, quote-unquote, sacred combinations of names, like abracadabra, wander back and forth and frequently become corrupted in their wanderings. In general, magic signs like these were called seals in our literature, not only because they were frequently engraved on rings, the production of magical rings of this kind was a well-defined trade, and we have textbooks in this so-called science, he uses the word science here, but also because of the common attitude that man seals himself with these signs and protects himself against the assaults of evil spirits. Two designs, both endowed with magical meaning and power, are frequently interchanged in the literature on talismans, the six-pointed star and the five-pointed star. In practice, 
the transition from one to the other was very easy, and the investigator of amulets will frequently find that where one uses the five-pointed star, another uses the six-pointed star. In the beginning, these designs had no special names or terms, and it is only in the Middle Ages that definite names began to be given to some of these most widely used. There is very little doubt the terms like these first became popular among the Arabs, who showed a tremendous interest in all of the occult sciences, arranging and ordering them systematically long before the practical Kabbalists thought of doing so. So it's Arabic, not Jewish or Christian. It is not to be wondered at, therefore, that for a long time both the five-pointed and six-pointed stars were called by only one name, the Seal of Solomon. Now there is a possibility that Solomon, because he had sexual relations with non-Israelite women, especially Edomite women, that he made use of such symbols. And like the author is saying, that the five-pointed and six-pointed stars were very common in the ancient world and the medieval world, that it's quite possible that Solomon did use such a symbol. But there again, there is no such terminology in Scripture. So it is probably falsely attributed to him. Let's continue. The so-called Seal of Solomon, and that no distinction was made between them, that is, between the five-pointed and six-pointed stars. This name is obviously related to the Jewish legend of Solomon's dominion over the spirits, and of his ring with the ineffable name engraved on it. These legends expanded and proliferated in a marked fashion during the Middle Ages among Jews and Arabs alike, but the name, Seal of Solomon, apparently originated with the Arabs. This term they did not apply to any one design exclusively. They applied it to an entire series of seven seals to which they attributed extreme potency in putting to flight the forces of the demon, or to invoke the demon. When the amulet of the seven seals was adopted by the Jews, its name was changed and other names were given to it, such as the seven signs of Rab Huda and the like. Seal of Solomon was applied by Jews only to the five and six-pointed stars. This became the usage among Christians as well, as at least from approximately the 13th century. The medieval Kabbalist Rabbi Abraham Abulafia compares the shape of the segal, a triangularly pointed Hebrew vowel sign, to the, quote, the sign of half the seal of King Solomon. (laughs) And the term is frequent in the Hebrew literature on amulets, so a triangle. Okay. The virtue of this seal as a talisman was always to accomplish one thing and one thing alone, to serve as a shield against the evil spirits. Shows you how much Judaism reeks of Kabbalism and the occult. It really does, folks. You should appreciate this as a fact. It reeks of Kabbalism. But most Christians don't care. They simply believe the lie that the uh, that the Jewish religion is the religion of the Bible. They simply believe that. Okay, so the whole point of it is to shield against evil spirits. Consequently, Oh, like those gargoyles on the churches. They're supposed to drive evil spirits away? Really? (laughs) Consequently, we find it in many of the magical versions of the mezuzah, which were so widespread from the beginning of the Middle Ages till about the 14th century. Mezuzot and amulets served an identical function for the adepts of magic. A German rabbi of the 12th century writes about the mezuzah that, quote, it is a common practice for the additional safety of the house to inscribe seals and angelic names at the end of the mezuzah verses. And this is neither forbidden nor commanded, but only for additional safety, unquote. A mezuzah is simply a, it's usually, uh, how should I describe it? It's not a box. It could be a box. But it's a container, uh, a long oblong container that's, uh, well, it's, it's very small, but it's uh, very long in comparison to its width. 
And it may have the Ten Commandments. It may have the name of Yahweh. It may have a Bible verse inscribed on the surface of it. And it may have uh, additional verses folded up in a sheet of paper inside of it. And this mezuzah is nailed to the jam of your doorway as uh, as a form of protection for your house. Okay? That's what a mezuzah is. But it could also be a uh, simply a symbol of reverence for the name of Yahweh. If you inscribe the name of Yahweh on it, or the Ten Commandments on it, it would have to be abbreviated tremendously because it's a very small object. So, for example, uh, a four or five or six inch mezuzah with maybe an inch or two wide at the most would be a common size for a mezuzah. So let's continue. Some of the early rabbis actually ruled that the mezuzah must be written in magical style and with the additions. Maimonides denounced the extremists who went so far as to inscribe the names and seals not only in the margins and between the verses of the text comprising the mezuzah, but even between the lines within each group of verses. In his opinion, such men are in the category of those who have no share in the world to come, for these fools were not content to nullify a commandment, but they took the great commandment of the unity of the name and his love and worship and used it as though it were an amulet for their own profit. <laughs> well, that's what you, that's what usually the Jews do, is use it as an amulet for their own profit, not a matter of worship. The seals in most of the versions of these magical mezuzot, of which some have come down to us, are nothing more than representations of the shield of David, sometimes as many as twelve in one mezuzah. Not sure what he means by representations. Because that, that would be hard to fit on one mezuzah. Maybe he's talking about the verses. Anyway, sometimes as many as twelve in one mezuzah, the late collector Alcon Adler once showed me such a one. It was not, therefore, hold on, therefore, as, as a symbol of the monotheistic faith that the six-pointed star began its Jewish career, but as a magical talisman for protection against the evil spirits. And this remained its primary meaning among the masses of the people until about a hundred years ago. All right, so it's a superstitious object. It's an object of superstition. That's what it is. The magical mezuzah originated without any doubt in Babylonia. Whoa! Now we're getting somewhere. Or Palestine in the Gaonic period, again, in the Exilic period, 7th to the 9th centuries common era, roughly. But we do not have enough evidence, and it certainly didn't originate with King David, right? But we do not have enough evidence today to decide from which of these two countries it comes. In the medieval literary sources that describe the method of preparing the magical mezuzah, we find no mention of the name of the seal, whether seal of Solomon or shield of David. In articles and textbooks we read the erroneous hypothesis to the effect that the Karaite scholar Judah Hadassi, in the middle of the 12th century, was the first to call this sign the shield of David in his book The Cluster of Camphor. Actually, this was only an addition by the 19th century printer. Very interesting. And for those of you who don't know, Karaism is the religion of the uh, ten northern tribes of Israel. It's not Talmudic. The Karaites believe that they are the Israelites of the ten northern tribes going all the way back to historical Samaria. And these people still live there, but they do not practice Judaism. They do not, and they reject the Talmud. And they are not Jews. They are Karaites of the ten northern tribes. Let's continue. In the course of the years, the magical mezuzah was forgotten, but the two forms of the seal of Solomon are preserved in the magical literature of all three religions. Anyone who looks into the Renaissance books on magical practices, like Solomon's Key, or the literature ascribed to the legendary magician Dr. Faustus, will find them used in many connections. 
Though the magical mezuzah went out of use after the Middle Ages, the figures served as a talisman in other amulets, some of which attained great popularity, like the famous amulet for putting out fires, on which was written the verse, quote, And the people cried unto Moses, and Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire abated, unquote. So they don't use the word Yahweh here, they use the word the Lord. Around the shield of David, in the center of which was written the formula A-G-L-A, the initial Hebrew letters of the verse, <coughs> excuse me, Thou art mighty forever, O Lord. So, any connection to King David? <laughs> Not yet, folks. Not yet. We're about halfway through this article, and we're almost out of time, so we're going to have to continue this next week to find out if there is any connection at all to King David of the tribe and house of Judah. Continuing here, where does this title, the Shield of David, come from, and what does it mean? It is known that among the medieval mystics, some legends were current about King David's shield and its magical powers. The earliest source is the Book of Desire, which is an interpretation of the 70 magical names of Metatron, Prince of the Divine Presence. Now that may come from either the Book of Enoch or the Book of Jasher, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think Metatron, if I'm not mistaken, Metatron is just another name for one of the guardian angels. And I wouldn't know which one. Maybe Gabriel? The book was composed in Germany in the 13th century. In the circle of the German Hasidim, of course these are Jews, Hasidic rabbis, by Eleazar of Worms, or one of his disciples. In it we read how King David had a golden shield upon which was engraved the great name of 72 names, a combination of holy names by whose virtue, the Midrash tells us, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. And of course, the Midrash is not the Bible, folks. That's more you know, Jewish mythology. And beneath was engraved the name of Taftepajah. Taftefaja, one of the names of the Prince of the Presence. Quote, And when a man is at war and his enemies attack him, let him remember it and he will be saved. Unquote. For the same book tells us that the numerical value of the Hebrew letters of Taftefaja is the same as that of the letters of Upon the Shield. Okay? So these rabbis love to play number games with words. They love to do that as if they had any significance. <laughs> there are numbers for words in Scripture, but we're talking about Jewish practices which are totally outside of Scripture and can therefore have no uh, religious significance for us and really should have no religious significance for them either. But they love to play word games and number games. That's what they love to do. Okay, so uh, unfortunately, our our uh, Christian ministers like to do that too. They, they make up concepts like rapture. <laughs> what is uh, 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 what is the number of the word rapture? So uh, you take the word rapture with its English, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Correspondences: a equals one, right? E equals five. And I, I don't know what the rest is. So maybe it adds up to 666, right? And whatever number it adds up to, you can create some sort of significance for that for that computation. right? That's basically how all this stuff works. So, let's continue. As early as the 13th century, the design of the Seal of Solomon, already found in Magical Mezuzot, was substituted for the great name of 72 names. Why this substitution occurred, I do not know. Although it is possible that the 72 names had been written out in an arrangement like the shape of the Seal of Solomon, we're assuming that shape is a six-pointed inter interlocking uh, triangle star, and that afterwards, as the writing of the names became stylized, lines finally took the place of the names. In the 17th century, in certain instances, we find instructions that the shield of David is not to be drawn in simple lines, 
but is to be composed of certain holy names and combinations of names. Like an acrostic. In any event, we may say with certainty that from such legend as this or from statements similar to that which I have quoted, the term Shield of David was developed. Okay? Now, this is very honest and straightforward by this Jewish writer. He's saying that it never came from King David. Well, he never s- explicitly states that it, sh- it should never be associated with King David of Judah. But he's just giving us the history of the symbol and the name, etc., etc. And he says it, it derived in much later history and it's also a part of ritual magic and never, there's no way you can associate it with King David. It's only in legend and myth that it is associated with King David. So let's see, let's continue here. In any event, we may say with certainty that from some such legend as this, or from statements similar to that which I have quoted, the term Shield of David was developed. Okay, so it's a modern invention. This is clearly proved by the place in which its first appearance is known to us. In the early years of the 14th century, there was composed in Spain the Book of the Boundary by David ben Judah. Ah, that David! (laughs) Oh, not David of Judah, the tribe of Judah, but ben Judah the pious, the grandson of Nachmanides. Alright, so here is the David for which the so-called Star of David is named. It is David, son of Judah the pious, a grandson of Nachmanides. In this book, which has been preserved only in manuscript, we twice find the design of the two cross triangles, both times called the Shield of David. Once the macrocosmic Shield of David, and once the microcosmic Shield of David. Beneath the pictures of the shield is written the name Taftafaja, which proves its intimate connection with the traditional concerning the King David's shield in the Book of Desire, not in the Book of the Bible. In some of the manuscripts I have examined, the design has become corrupted and has been replaced by a single triangle or by the five-pointed star. But in a number of old manuscript compendia of the practical Kabbalah, we find protective amulets with the picture of the shield of David, and at its center or by its side the same name, Taftapaja. One of these is the book entitled The Roots of the Names by Rabbi Moses Zakut, a famous encyclopedia of the practical Kabbalah dating from the 17th century. <laughs> okay? So, before I lose this page, let me just repeat. The Star of David was never named after King David of Israel. It is named after David ben, or son of Judah the pious, a grandson of Nachmanides. This is the David for which the Star of David was named. Let's continue. An altogether different tradition concerning the emblem on King David's shield exists from the 15th century on, It was first mentioned in the Sacrifice of Isaac by the noted Spanish preacher Rabbi Isaac Arama, and it taught that the emblem on King David's shield was not the image that we know by this name, but Psalm 67 in the shape of the menorah, the seven-branched candelabrum. The menorah pictured on the shield of David, here is the most curious combination of the two motifs, this tradition knows nothing of the Magan David in our sense, so it's a whole completely separate tradition. It must be admitted that the menorah would seem to have a better right to serve as a symbol of Judaism, no, it wouldn't, than the shield of David in its present accepted form, because Judaism is not the religion of the Bible. The writing of Psalm 67 in the shape of the menorah became very widespread after the 15th century. It was a custom to read this psalm during the seven weeks between Passover and Shavuot, which I think they, is their word for Pentecost. And in all the special prayer books for this period, it was so written. Hence, 
arose the custom of using this image in synagogues and other places, and the capitalists gave its talismanic virtue unlimited praise. At the end of a booklet entitled The Golden Menorah, printed in Prague in the 16th century, we read, quote, This psalm, together with the menorah, is an allusion to great things. And King David used to bear this psalm inscribed, pictured, and engraved on his shield on a sheet of gold in the shape of the menorah when he went forth to battle, and he would meditate on its mystery and conquer, unquote. Obviously, not a scriptural pronunciation. And similarly in many other books. It would seem, however, that the talismanic power of the star representation of the shield of David was more tried and true, so that it has won out over its representation in the form of the menorah, even on the modern battlefield of Jewish symbolism. It says modem. (laughs) On the modem battlefield, that's a typo. On the modern battlefield of Jewish symbolism. Isn't, Isn't the world a battlefield of symbolism? Isn't the world a battlefield of symbolism? We have our symbols, such as the cross, such as the the, the cup, right? The, the Last Supper cup, etc. Oh, even the fish, the, uh, uh, oh, what was it called? The Vesica Pisces, which is a symbol of a fish, based on Christ's pronunciation, I am a fisher of men, or you shall be fishers of men to the apostles. So every religion has its various symbols. But Christianity is the only religion whose symbols, except maybe for the cross, and even the Vesica Pisces, because those came after Jesus, have historical symbols such as the menorah and the oil and the wine representing books of wisdom, etc. Our symbols are historical and contained in the Bible, whereas every other religion simply makes them up as they go along, as this this Jewish author is proving to us right here. So what we are seeing here, again, the fact that Christian identity bases, we base our belief exclusively on Scripture and no other source unless we can find a historical parallel to connect it with Scripture. Such as, for example, the the little tablet found at Mount Ebal, the cursed tablet containing the name of Yahweh and the... The word curse, curse, curse in Hebrew many times on that little lead tablet depicting the gathering of the Israelites under Joshua just before their invasion of Canaan land in the year 1406 B.C. Christianity is the only purely historical religion. Or it should be. But it's not because the modern churches as true history as if it were a plague. No, they just want you to believe their mythology just as the Jews want you to believe their mythology. Buddhism wants you to believe their mythology. Islam wants you to believe its mythology, etc., etc., etc. Don't be fooled, folks. The only religion in the world that has a true historical basis is Christianity, true Christianity. Thanks for listening. We'll pick up part two of this next week. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you next time. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis... Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The 
Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.